it rained concepts for 40 days and 40 nights. This will be our cold open for the episode. Of Including the ultimate form of security, which is Welcome to Machine Gun Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's discussion, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there. If not, maybe leave us a sweet review on iTunes. We definitely appreciate any support you can provide. I will actually allow Taylor, since he's kind of he's got a very intimate involvement with our discussion today, so I'll let you take over and uh, introduce this topic of discussion. Today, we are working from the draft that I am working on with a friend of mine, Rocco Gangle, who translated um, the Philosophies of Difference book by Laruel, which is fun. It's a pretty good place to start for, you know, it's always a question, where do we start with Laruel? So that's a good place to start. I recommend his translation. It's, you know, on Derrida, Heidegger, a little bit of Deleuze thrown in there, right? But in any case, we are, we have translated the 500 plus page monster of a book, which translates into English as non-standard philosophy. This is published in 2011. So it's, I mean. Oh, interesting. When was the intro to non-philosophy published? The philosophy the one that- is a di- the, the one original one, yeah, the original translation you did. Yeah, philosophy and non-philosophy was published oh, right. in 1989. Okay, interesting. Gotcha. Compared to philosophy and non-philosophy, there's like, there's quote-unquote five phases of Laruel's work, which roughly break up almost into periods of about 10 years, more like eight. But in any case, philosophy and non-philosophy is going to be like one of the, not the opening text of non-philosophy, but one of the ones that kind of, to a certain extent, inaugurates it. You know, he's 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 kind of mentioned how it was written with his quote unquote students in mind, right? With disseminating the idea more broadly of a non-philosophy. So, you know, looking back, if philosophy and non-philosophy is one of those like opening texts for what non-philosophy could be, non-standard philosophy is another kind of opening text, if you will. It's It's what non-philosophy could look like from the viewpoint of like a, what he calls a generic science, you know, where he's looking to some principles of quantum physics and saying, what if we generalize these and use them to keep doing what he's always been doing, which is to try to craft a science of philosophy, right? A science that's like crafted for not only interpreting philosophy's mechanisms, but also a means of like transforming them. 
in the same gesture. So it's a very special kind of science. So he's still, in that sense, I think the non-philosophy is, is right there in the title. I just think he, uh, one of the reasons why he proposes it, even if he says it's a little awkward, non-standard philosophy is a way of avoiding some of the confusions that non-philosophy uh, brought about. For example, that it's anti-philosophy, that it's trying to like destroy philosophy. You know, he's had to deal with that kind of misinterpretation for, you know, almost 30 plus years now, right? So I think that's why he, uh, he takes up this kind of new terminology in the, in this weird, I say weird, but it's like, it's for me, it's also like fantastically weird, this weird sort of usage of a generalized, generalized principles from like quantum, quantum physics, what he calls quantics. It's this undetermined kind of thing kind of like schroeder's cat is a little bit undetermined but not 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 all that silly yeah. or maybe more silly who knows right yeah i mean that's kind of a good idea to like I, or that's i think indicative of how i at least kind of perceive like things being decided in the last instance as it and even then as it sort of applies to quantum physics but like i don't know there's so many oversimplifications of quantum mechanics and quantum physics within the like broader discourse it's hard to know what is actually you know what i mean i think similar to you know Deleuze and guattari right it's like there's a certain level of like vocabulary etc that gets caught up in this recursive like pop society here pop you know i guess very surface level interpretation or whatever and that kind of takes on a life of its own he has a little section on what he calls like the like the quantic philosopher or he'll just he'll just kind of make a pretty much tongue-in-cheek little reference to schrodinger's cat you know this non-philosopher in the box but it's it's really not about obviously alive or dead kind of thing um you know it's it's much more this question in terms of indeterminacy of the example he gives that i always think of instead of like schrodinger's cat right it's where we, we like lift the box and it's like both at the same time or right. whatnot, right? The, the, everybody knows the experiment. I won't even go through it. Uh, you can look it up. It's, it's kind of silly. And there are interpretations of quantum physics that kind of forego this type of paradox of a cat that's alive and dead at, at the same time, but indeterminately. And he uses this example of, of the water fish. This is a hyphenated, he calls it a chimera, right? This, the non-philosopher is a water fish swimming in through the wave and indeterminately fish, but also water, right? Depending on how you look at it. And this whole notion of- of Like in a kind of Spinozist way or? In the sense in which, in the sense in which it's, it's kind of- Like the philosophers are caught up in it's the milieu of the flow of the quanta. Yeah, I mean that- that's, Matter that's... and energy, et cetera. That's a pretty good way of, of putting it. Because I mean, it, I think it kind of goes to that model of Schrodinger without necessarily being quite so slavish to that simplicity. It's the idea that if we treat thought less corpuscularly or let's what we would normally say atomistically, right? It, right. it with composed of little individual thoughts. Uh, if we treat thought, what he calls as an undulation, as kind of a waveform, there is a way in which we can sort of get to a level, an indeterminate level where we're as thinkers, quote unquote, right? As non-philosophers, we're able to kind of compose ourselves with 
the wave of thought. See, all of this starts to sound very fucking trippy, right? Like I do feel like parts of this require yeah. require some sort of suspension of I don't want to say disbelief, but a suspension of belief in philosophy and it's like ways of breaking up phenomena in the world and the ways in which we're like habitually suited to to thinking things, not just in terms of common sense, but obviously in terms of the the orthodox image of thought as we kind of talked about last week with Chantal Gray, right? There's a sense in which if we can become like the water fish and like not be fish out of water when we're talking about philosophy in this overall broad sense, but but be kind of like, you know, we're part and parcel of the wave. We are born along by this, this thought experiment, uh, this waveform thought experiment. Then we can kind of start to wonder about what are the stakes? I know we've all, we're, we're speaking very, very broadly, and it sounds like we haven't really gotten very far because I we haven't laid down things, but I just, I like the idea of, of a water fish better than, than Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's cat as this, as the animal with which we are going to try to, that's our spirit animal today. It's not the cat in a box, but the fish in and of water. What do you think about, because he does bring up and kind of sort of credit Marx as the first person to suggest a a science of philosophy, but he only sees one sort of part of it and sort of critique of the dialectic as sort of being this gesture towards but incompleteness of uh, a philosophical science of philosophy. I mean, do you think that's maybe a good way to kind of discuss that? And because people would have like a certain understanding of like that might provide some context in terms of this approach. Perhaps to draw on, you know, our discussion with Thomas Nail, Marx in motion, like there is perhaps some type of uh, generative little discussion there, maybe? I don't know. So to clarify for the the readers, what we've looked at today is the first 40 pages or so of the book. There's two introductions to the, to the work. <laughs> There's one that's kind of a, almost a stylistic intro in terms of the stakes of what's going on in terms of taking philosophy and physics in this weird way and trying to create a science of philosophy that we mentioned that's intro one then intro two gets a little bit more concrete about some of the stakes but in that second intro as coop mentioned larwell does kind of make this offhand remark that that marx had a certain idea of a science of philosophy and including he's the one that larwell kind of credits for this notion of determination in the last instance which is an important concept for larwell just it's it's an extremely important concept, and that's not even the interesting thing here. He's talked about that. That's not a new one for, for right. Laura yeah, Well, yeah, right? Yeah. He's talked about that for 30-plus years. Um, I do think that with Marx, you know, not to even get in the weeds here, one of the things that I think that you can see in terms of a science of philosophy is when, and everybody always talks about this, you know, Marx's 11th, thesis in the thesis on Feuerbach, right, where Marx is kind of elaborating this more materialist type of way of wanting to mobilize philosophy after Hegel in a more materialist vein and sort of rid itself of some of those idealist remnants that Feuerbach, he started us along this path of trying to maybe make it a little bit less idealist. Marx wants to make it more human. This will be another thing that Laura Well really seizes upon, right? This question of how philosophy is this sort of exploitation of of man, of thinking, etc. But one of the things that Marx says, right, is like it's 
It's no longer about interpreting the world. It's about transforming it. And I think that for me, in the simplest way, I would see Laurawell as seizing upon this and thinking about how for Laurawell himself, I mean, again, for the past 30 years or more, he's been consistent about how for his way of viewing things, for non-philosophy's way of viewing things, philosophy is the form of the world, is, you know, in terms of... Like the platonic form or just just to clarify? No, no more, more generic than that. Okay, gotcha. Right. More, okay. On a more general level, philosophy is a kind of, it's what it calls world thought. It's a very general thing that he's kind of meaning where it is, I mean, not to get into all of his language and just to anticipate a little bit, for Laurawell, there's a certain sense in which philosophy is kind of how would i even put this because it's situated at the level of what he calls the world the only reason why i brought that up and we can even look at world thought in, in the dictionary because i think that that's an important thing and just to give a, a little sense but the main thing being for laura well if we can transform if we can have a science of philosophy and its ways of operating in terms of its ways of uh its structures then that also gives us kind of a handle on sort of how we are situated as humans in the world in terms of just whether it be exploitation of thought or exploitation of human essence, blah, 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 all these things that he kind of formulates in different ways. So now it's no longer a question of interpreting philosophy, which generally means interpreting the world based on philosophies points of view, its ways of moving about, its, its ways of operating, but of taking philosophy and isolating it and understanding how those structures work so that we can transform them. And I think that for him, these have these benefits where it's not just about a, a freer reign of thinking and a freer range of thinking, but also very provocatively, he sees it as in this Gnostic vein that if we can have a certain knowledge or understanding or knowing of philosophy, which he considers a non-knowledge in a kind of Socratic, in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, if we can have a certain understanding of, a Gnostic understanding, if you will, of our you know, immersion in philosophy just by habitually thinking our immersion in the world, that can lead us to reconceiving what he might call generic salvation which would be, it would be non-religious, maybe in the same way we think of non-philosophy, right? It wouldn't necessarily be, it'd be non-standardly religious or something like this. <laughs> it wouldn't necessarily... Uh, yeah, because this kind of breaks yeah. the dialectical opposite, the transcendental dialectic between like belief and non-belief that are really mm -hmm. sort of, I guess, I don't know. I... <laughs> How do I, I, like, I, I no, lack I, the term to describe this. I like, I, I, I like how you said that, though, because that's kind of what Laurel calls heresy, right? As we talked with uh, Jeremy Smith when he came on the show, right. we, Interesting. We, we talked a lot about this notion of heresy. And I think that this helps us to understand a little bit more about philosophy as world or even philosophy as very much like religion, where there's the sense in which to... I mean, it's kind of interesting because I feel like to just draw back on our discussion with Stephen Holgate on his work on... Hegel's uh, science of logic. I don't know if this is something that Laurel is necessarily in dialogue with, but I thought at least Hegel's attempt to do this presuppositionless 
science of logic is part of this discussion, even though he kind of skips past Hegel and kind of credits Marx as the first purveyor of a type of general or move towards a general science of philosophy. Shit, I kind of lost the plot No, no, no. in my, the, in my no, own discussion, but there was something about... You were um, on it, though, about, about this. Like uh, Hegel, uh, really what I was trying to say is I think Hegel, to me, the science of logic, Hegel's kind of whole thing is, I guess, with absolute knowing reminds me of a sort of non-religious religion or like a non-standard religion in the way that it kind of mirrors this. You know, I think there's there's a Gnostic element to it, but I don't know. That's how sort of Hegel strikes me with absolute knowing and all that kind of absolute spirit, etc. You said you said you said a couple of things there that, that's really <laughs> nice. You know, I do think that in a certain sense, Hegel might have a certain form where he would Christianity, for example, would be the the sort of essence of this elaboration, but potentially could, through the dialectic, be able to rid itself of that own particularity and become Sublate, more universal. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but you said something about like presuppositionless logic. Yeah, I do think that that's something interesting. And I was going to say that might radical eminence, but I, I don't know. Right. It's weird because Hegel has the whole retroactivity, re retroactive I don't know about the decision in the last instance or, you know, I don't know. This is difficult, <laughs> difficult to, no, to put into words. This so, is fine. I mean, we could, you're fine. I, I would just say that you seized upon radical eminence. And so, like, I'll just say real quickly, instead of talking about presuppositionless logic, you know, for Laruel, there's no way to start in a in a kind of vacuum where being in nothing. Can I mean, I get this would, as vanishing into one another. But radical this eminence, would be the, the, the water fish. Right. This is right. the water fish, right? Because that would be this return to an atomistic, like, oh, we can just extract ourselves from being or becoming or whatever. And I will say that one of the interesting things about radical eminence, as he specifies it, is that this is something that we always talk about together in in our private conversations about this notion of uh, what does it mean for the one or radical eminence to be foreclosed to thought, right? It's how and why you know does radical eminence is it it's foreclosed to thought but can thereby give give rise to it in what he calls a force of thought you know there is this sense in which the force of thought has a lot of resonance with someone like Deleuze where we talk about how something like a problematic a problem has to force thinking right right and there's a sense in which on the one hand, and this is kind of back to the world stuff, you know, for I think for Laura Welf, there's an opposition between on the one hand, philosophy, world or being, right, which he thinks of in terms of transcendence, right, it's almost on the level of a cosmological meditation versus the one which would be radical eminence, which is something foreclosed to thought. So it doesn't necessarily avail itself of our means of thinking cosmologically like the wonder that there is something yeah yeah okay nothing yeah, yeah right yeah. the one isn't isn't a part of that kind of dialectic of of this kind of meditation about something nothing and this is why Laura Wells one qua radical eminence or what he calls the one in one is not the same one that we find in Plato where it's opposed to the many you know what I mean like it's not in that dialectic so this is a kind of this is why a lot of what Laruel is doing comes off to someone like Badu rightly or wrongly as quasi-mystical 
although again for Laurel, mysticism would still be this sort of this idea that one can have a direct more or less unmediated access to a transcendence and thereby and thereby experience the ineffable but somehow through language make that right right experience more palpable and i think that for Laurel, that's precisely where eminence radical eminence being foreclosed to thought yet giving rise to it comes back to something that we did a couple of years ago where we did the 10 matrices of the one's description right because Laurel's problem back then when we were discussing this this was 89 so this is like the beginnings of non-philosophy is this idea that there is this paradox but it's only apparently a paradox where we are trying to describe the indescribable as indescribable without a paradox right because it's not about you know there are different ways of doing this i mean in classical ancient thought there is this you know way of what we might think of as a negative theology where any sort of positive attribution to this higher transcendent instance whether it be a god or you know cosmological principle blah 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 where any sort of positive attribution has to be said no to right that's not it and i think that with laurel there is a way in which one can describe the one's eminence or radical eminence this being foreclosed to thought if there is care taken to sort of inscribe within thinking or within the the writing the elaboration of thinking if we inscribe within that what he calls unilaterality right which is that thinking doesn't turn back and reflect back towards the one we're not thinking back towards it we're thinking like from it in one direction. Now we're not trying to elaborate the essence of some sort of hidden God or some sort of, you know, hidden essence of the cosmos, you know, some sort of animating principle that underlies all things. Now we're no longer doing a mysticism, right? Because a mysticism is going to try to go both ways. It's going to try to go back to before the Big Bang or some shit, right? It's going to try to go back to that moment of, you know, self-cause where, you know, God giving birth to himself or some shit, right? It's no longer trying to sort of uncover this, this hiddenness that would animate everything, which is another reason why he opposes the one to what he calls the all. All I'm trying to do here is just sketch out a little bit of the, of the reasons why it can seem Laurel comes close to this mysticism. But in fact, he's trying to like circumscribe that from the start, it's important because if, I guess my point would be if, if we don't have something like the one is radical eminence foreclosed to thought, there's no way of sort of falling back into these vicious circles that he describes, right? Like what the human is a superposition of vicious circles. We're sort of caught in this hell of these vicious circles. And there's something about unraveling the circle in a way in which we're or these circles in a way in which we're no longer not everything is reversible anymore right so this this question of an irreversible unilateral order is very much a way of trying to it's one of the consequences i think of suspending philosophy's primary modes of moving forward in thinking which is to take a unity of contraries and use that as the the sort of 
use that as the battlefield with which to move forward. Obviously, we saw that with Holgate and Hegel, that that's kind of where we start, right? We start with this unity of contraries of being and nothing. They're not immediately a unity. They are immediately a unity, and but they are immediately vanishing into one another, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. This is how you start with, with the dialectic. And I think, you know, for Laura Well, what he's trying to understand is how that way of doing things is sort of essential to philosophy, even if it takes on different terms. Or I think Hegel kind of is the culmination point of bringing philosophy to exposing these structures. Right. Yeah. yeah. Without himself taking on the task of elaborating that yeah, yeah. that exposition in a way that would that would get us to what Laura Wells trying to do, which is this generic science of philosophy. Mm-hmm. I just don't know where to go next, really. Why don't we just use this as like our our little thing, like you and me hanging out. Obviously, we could go further, but I mean, I feel like uh, this may have been an ambitious thing. I honestly think that the intros really only are like serving to either ward people off or to like provide some interest. I'm kind of feeling like this may not be the best thing for our audience in a certain sense. I do feel like I'm already in my head because I'm already in my head thinking about how fucking crazy this shit sounds. <laughs> so, I mean, I think we're not doing that bad of a job so far. We could at least maybe use that as Patreon content or something. Yeah, I mean, like it's it might be something we we put some more we come back to like we could like keep some of this or you as you said, you could put it on Patreon. I feel a little bit overwhelmed with with how much because I almost want to like try to talk about these things in broad terms. Because if we get even get in the weeds on any one term, it's like, right. Yeah, that's going to be a whole. <laughs> there's a million things to do. Exactly. Um, yeah. You have a read on what La Royale is talking about with like the messianic shit. I guess maybe one of the things that's unsatisfying in this text is that this is not his in goal to talk about that stuff gotcha he's got these other books around the same period you know obviously around in a, a few years prior he's got what christo blah blah yeah future christ yeah he's got yeah well the christ of fiction he's got future christ he's got clandestine theology so a lot of his reflections are sort of circumscribed to that but i mean i suppose my way of thinking about it is this question about there's a sense in which insofar what he calls like futurality amplitudes that mm-hmm. the futural as he calls it is is wave-like kind of like thoughts and there's a sense in which he's starting to see messianism as virtual and so insofar, virtual in the Deleuzean sense more or less virtual in the sense in which it doesn't it's not actualized out in the world as though that were a thing so in that sense it brings it much closer to much closer to sort of understanding it eminently rather Mm -hmm. than like existing in being so there's there's part of that aspect of this question of whether or not salvation is it's kind of the same way with his, his generic shit where it's not about finding it in the world or due to some sort of grace from on high that it is almost more, I think this is kind of the literal thing with, with future Christ that Christ is this in a sense figure that 
can be understood as involved with I'm trying to think of the best way to put this without sounding completely insane. That would kind of be my thing where it's like, it's not about, it's not necessarily about some heaven or some afterlife to a certain extent. It is much more about the question of whether or not, you know, humanity should or needs to be saved is this recurring theme. And um, he asked some similar questions about whether or not philosophy should be saved. And I think to a certain extent, what he's, what his point being, it needs to be saved from its own sufficiency. That's his point because it's, it's philosophy's sufficiency that makes it establish. What is sufficiency? So sufficiency would basically be, let's say in the broadest sense, and this isn't even like necessarily how he defines it in the dictionary, but the way I understand sufficiency in a broad sense is the spontaneous way in which philosophy or really habitually we as thinkers in the world try to think about these bigger issues that I brought up, like in the kind of cosmological meditation where mm -hmm. we're asking these big questions where we spontaneously think that thought can determine what he calls the real or the one. And in its ways of proceeding through language, through its manipulation of oppositions can mobilize those in order to provide a framework that thinks the one. This is really why Larwell simplifies and say, this is only world thought. The one and the world are not the same, right? The one is what he calls, he says it's before first. Now that's what he kind of calls it, right? The one is foreclosed to thought, whereas the world is the very kind of form in which we think. Right. So we're only kind of like circumscribed in a certain way, but we don't realize this. And we conflate the one in the world and we assume that the one is more or less the world, except in a way in which it's merely hidden or would it like, be like the problems we encounter in the world are like are contingent, like they're not transcendental problems, but they're. Yeah, there's it's not like this problem we have to solve of uh of capitalism for let's say is like this mm -hmm. transcendental like capitalism not some transcendental thing that we have to solve by demand or whatever of the one or the world rather right by the problem by the problem the field of problems that we find ourselves within yeah i, I mean exactly so basically just to kind of go back to to the, that question because i think it is important you know there's a sense in which philosophy believes it is sufficient in its very usage of language of ordinary language naively even if it puts some reflection in and it puts a little bit of thought thought into it and tries to organize these thoughts it calls it reason it thinks that it can um determine or co-determine the real to a certain extent right that it thinks that it can through thought mirror the real or sort of present the real in an ordered presentation of language that thereby determines it, right? This is why I brought up religion earlier, where philosophies are going to say, I have truth in my presentation of reality, in my presentation of what really is out there and really facing us, the big problems that face us. It's the same way that religion does. And you can see all these different philosophies, all these different religions breaking off and having these schisms that really have to do with 
the narcissism of petty differences. There's so many small differences in doctrine or dogma or doxa, Catholics, Presbyterians, yada, yada. And the Protestants have their own, all the, their sex, their crazy sex. And even for historical reasons, like Southern Baptists, stuff, right, like right, yeah. you brought up with me, right? Wanting to sort of keep slavery. Uh, so philosophy goes in the same way. And this is why I think Laura Wells' notion of heresy which doesn't proceed by trying to recreate a church or a school or a or an institution. This is another thing that I see Laurawell and Guattari on, right? When yeah. Guattari's talking about these always mortal formations, that that the death drive being inherent in them is actually a good thing because then they don't ossify and create these these organizations that that try to develop a will to power to keep living there's a sense in which laura wells notion of non-philosophy is this constant iterative process of retransforming the material of sufficiency because to a certain extent laurel does believe non-philosophy is not a fully settled constituted theory practice that it, it generates in its movement and if it could be like well we solved all the problems that's sufficiency. You know, there's a sense in which Larwell is, he considers his projects as each book is like a new reshuffling of the cards, of the cards of these constant attempts. There's two, at least, there's two constants at the very least. Understanding radical eminence and its consequences, which I think is linked to your question about messianity, although I don't feel like, I feel like we'd have to talk a lot more to get to that yeah, point, yeah. but, right. and then the other thing is a science of philosophy, because for Laura Wells, science has all these different domains, and I'm sure we'll continue to elaborate those domains for different phenomena, but Laura Wells kind of asking, what is it? Philosophy has always wanted to be science. We have plenty of examples of this, not just even back since Plato, Husserl's even thing was philosophy as rigorous science. This is phenomenology. Philosophy has always wanted to pretend it could be a science. I think this is another aspect of its sufficiency. But Larwell saying there's never really been a science of philosophy. There's never been a science that's generalized enough to understand philosophy as a scientific phenomenon, as a phenomenon of thinking. Philosophy has always thought it could do this itself, that it could reflect on its own structures by itself. And I think Laura Well is saying, no, it can't, because it's already kind of judge and jury at the same time, and it's already biased. It's already contaminated. This is also the same thing why non-philosophy is not a metaphilosophy, because metaphilosophy is this attempt to try to think in one remove, almost in like a, like a squaring of itself and a doubling, again, this redoubling of itself that it can reverse back and look at its structures. And I think that for Laura Well, that's not how science works. The objects of a science don't necessarily go out of themselves and look back on themselves. And this is also too why for him, a truly radical non-philosophy, non-standard philosophy, right? One that doesn't take philosophy and as the arbiter of itself, an actual science of philosophy could then too give us a means to have a truly human science. Because I think for him too, there's something wrong with the human sciences and the social sciences, because we as humans are trying to look back and take humans as the object of a science without first radically interrogating the means for eliminating a kind of vicious circle. Does that make sense? We're implicated in our own science 
not unlike the way in which in quantum physics, the observer can be implicated. Even if that's a more extreme case, there is something going on there too that's analogous. And so I think that that's why for Laura Well, this idea that one of the last continents of science, as he calls it, is philosophy as an object, but not just as an object too. It's also a symptom. There is this, this is the analytic moment of analytic and psychoanalysis since this is where there's an analogy of analysis because philosophy is a symptom of sufficiency. And by that, I talk about this with like, um, you know, I talked about this with my mother-in-law the other day where there's a sense in which philosophy believes it can, it's as though, who was it we had on who was just like, just start talking and the problems will, and then the, the order of reasons, the solutions will start to, to come about. You start to tackle the, the issues as you start to talk. I think there's a sense of that in, in philosophy, right? It's like, just say anything and then we can come in and order things and, and take in and take out and uh, we can we can sort of get to the real through our language. So I think that that's, you know, it's part of philosophy's arrogance to a certain extent, but in any case, I'll leave you this one thing, the definition of philosophy that he has. So he says it's an object and he gives three understandings of, of this. It's an object of non-philosophy, right? Because I just said non-philosophy is supposedly a science, a generic mm -hmm. science of philosophy. Right. As an object, there's three aspects to this. It's an occasion, right? So it's an occasion for transformation, right? Because we're not supposed to just interpret philosophy or the world. We're supposed to transform it, right? Which is back to the Marxian. Yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's an occasion, too, for elaborating non-philosophy's own viewpoints. That's the main thing. So now philosophy is, is a material of transformation. It's an occasion for elaborating non-philosophies, um, whether it be radical eminence, unilateral duality, all of these different things, last instance. And it's also a symptom. So it's a symptom of the world. It's a symptom of sufficiency. It's a, it's a symptom of our enmeshment in transcendence, but the definition, and then I'll, I'll stop a philosophy that he gives. This is the the rough one. That was the definition that he gives, right? It's an object of non-philosophy, but he specifies this by saying, when it tries to think itself rather than practice itself spontaneously and naively, philosophy is for itself the object of a half saying, of a half definition, or of a game of speeches and silences. The true philosopher's predicament is to say the philosophy, right? Like in French law, philosophie. So right. what is the the? It's kind of like La Femme and Lacan, right? There's this question of the 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 and it needs to be crossed out. So the true philosopher predicament is to say the philosophy. Philosophical systems are an aborted or endangered effort to say what philosophy is, to dissimulate the impossibility of saying it, to avoid having to keep silent. That's how he kind of glosses that. So the half saying of philosophy is kind of like Lacan, right? You can only say, you can't say the whole truth, right? You can't say all the truth. There's a sense in which philosophy can't do that about itself. It can't say quote unquote, all the truth about itself. You can only tell it slant, if you will. I can only tell it in a vicious circle way because it can't get out of that by itself. So it needs something that would be external or as he says, hetero, heteronymous, that it's, it's got a different mode of approach than philosophy. And I think for him, 
This allows us to have a better understanding, not just of philosophy, not just of our sort of relation to the world and how we think it, but potentially a more intimate understanding of how we could proceed otherwise than in a philosophical regime, which I also think is in a, in a religious regime, in a regime of sufficiency, which at the limit, he will elaborate also in ways that you are interested in and brought up earlier, which is about like capitalist exploitation, because to a certain extent, philosophy as world form is also the capital form in thought. Philosophy is that form of extraction, of exploitation, of, of sort of manipulating a rare stock to produce some sort of surplus value. Like he sees this in philosophy's inner workings. There's a correlation in the structures of thinking exploitatively and thinking philosophically. Like a dogmatic As, image of thought. He would be fine with that kind of usage. He might say, we have to be able to formulate a theory of the dogmatic images of thought, which is something that Deleuze was also obviously trying to go for. And I think Laurel wants a formalized theory, but that also is wrapped up with a practice of generically transforming them, right? Because if thought without image is, is more an ideal than an achievable thing, we need to have the most generic thought. And I think that the image I would say for Laura Well is this image of undulation, of amplitude, right? Of, of the waveform. In many ways, philosophies are big corpuscles. They're big macroscopic atoms in the right. ancient sense, right? Yeah. That are bouncing off one another and fighting one another, and they're opposed to one another. But I think for Laura Well, from the generic framework, there can be a way in which philosophies don't have to be at odds with one another because they can be suspended from a unilateral principle where they are all, if you want to say equal and unequal, because they're all foreclosed, right? I mean, like this is the standpoint of radical eminence where no philosophy is better than another. Even if we may have our proclivities for philosophers, those are biases, those are prejudices, whether it be of reading, of pleasure, persuasion, perhaps, of sometimes cult-like behavior where we attach ourselves to one philosopher or the other because we think they have the answers or they we think they have the the truth <laughs> hegelians oh sorry yeah <laughs> so and maybe laurawellians too right <laughs> i mean like so i think that that's where i think that for laurawell what if we took philosophy's corpuscular aspect and by corpuscle he means he's thinking of like this outdated scientific term kind yeah, of like, like the it, ancient greek sort of vibe right Right. And even during Newton's time, I think corpuscles were kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, corpuscle is, it's kind of like ether we think of, or phlogiston. Flig, flig, what, what was the word for oxygen? Anyway, it, it's kind of like a pre scientific aspect of philosophy that it's, he calls it the regime of philosophy is the wave. It's the wave corpuscle duality, but the corpuscle is predominant. So what if we could create this super collider, this conceptual super collider, wherein concepts can be accelerated to the points uh, where they can, they can sort of enter this particulate phase and be slammed together. This is kind of the thought experiment, right? But at first they have to be rendered sterile, as he says it. They have to be, they have to have their sufficiency removed. He's had a whole procedure for this for 30 years in different ways. And as soon as they stop being sufficient, they also stop being warmongering. They stop being at odds with one another. It's no longer about who's 
who's got the better the truth, view of right, yeah. who's got the truth. Same with religions, right? So yeah, exactly. Um, that really brings in a good relief that like analogy of like you said, the little fucking foibles or whatever that are causing these splits and splits and splits and splits. And so the main idea being it's only philosophy sufficiency that keeps them at loggerheads that keeps them in a warmongering sense, not just amongst themselves, but two against science. Philosophy and science has always kind of had this, this thing philosophy has wanted to be science. And so it kind of is hostile to it and, and wants to thereby turn around and say, well, science needs a philosophy to ground it in order to truly be thought and not just to be a, a succession of facts. Right. This is kind of what philosophy has always presented itself with. Hey, wouldn't let me sell you a bridge, right? Let me sell you on philosophy, whether it be realism or determinism, blah, blah, blah. All of these debates you can see throughout the history of thought if you want. And I think for Laura Well, philosophy has always tried to present a peace treaty amongst itself and science coming from it to science. And I think Laurel is saying that's still one last remnant of sufficiency, right? Because in the end, philosophy in the, in the fine print is kind of saying, but thought needs philosophy in order to excel in its essence. So therefore, science actually needs a philosophy in the last instance. And Laurel is saying, no, for the first time, we need, we need the peace treaty coming from science to philosophy. And it can only happen if science in its own explicit way above board no longer sort of you know in an indeterminate way but above board where science is saying philosophy needs a science of it a generic science that would be a science of philosophy that's adapted to its object that also respects identities too this is something that's interesting for laura wells the way in which non-philosophy doesn't take philosophy or different philosophies and just like mix them all together there is a sense in which he wants to see them as particles in a continuous waveform of thinking. Ah, uh, ooh, that's good. That's so like that's nice. What, what would that look like if right. if if Kantian particles and Hegelian particles, and even more interestingly, would be the different concepts, right? Because I think that's you know, yeah, yeah. There, there's a sense in which like he calls this a conceptual formalism. So what if mm -hmm. you know what is it to what happens when we're slamming together? all the various concepts that you know Deleuze came up with or or Kant or Plato but now none of them have any sort of preference or salience or predominance in comparison to one another what if they really are these sort of conceptual particles that can be slammed together and this is kind of his dice throw that he's thinking of is being able to undertake this thought experiment where we are colliding concepts in a super collider like we're tossing dice and that's part of the wager of wagering on thought as amplitude right thought as undulatory as undulation that can't happen unless we can get out of philosophy's corpuscular regime which again i think is is its sufficiency because it it wants to claim it is sufficient to think the real and yeah. therefore is more sufficient than any other mode of thinking yeah like science or math think about someone like badu or plato badu's got his own kind of sufficiency because for him he wants to say well truths come from science art politics love those are where truths come from and they they are their own modes of thinking and they elaborate 
those truths in the world and try to connect them and see the ramifications of it. Philosophy is a kind of indeterminate mode of compossibility of these truths in a way that doesn't give philosophy precedence over them or makes philosophy generative of truths. He kind of sterilizes it in his own way. And I think that for Laruel, what happens then is that Badu makes this decision where philosophy is no longer ontology. I think for Laruel, there's two ways of, of looking at philosophy. One, you can take philosophy, cut ontology off from it and say, no, ontology is mathematics. Philosophy does something else. It's almost like a custodian of truth procedures and truths those other truth procedures elaborate and it can in ontology which is mathematics can help us to show this if philosophy is attentive and so in that way he's kind of very much like plato where you have to be a geometer to, to enter into plato's academy Badu tries to do this in his own way but for laruel this first of all cuts philosophy in half it makes this kind of butchering movement where it pretends as though philosophy is not immediately always already ontology, isn't always already trying to think being, which is what it's always been trying to do. So it kind of almost denies philosophy's role or its spontaneity to a certain extent. For Larwell, I think that that's already to have taken the phenomenon to be analyzed, philosophy, and then to, to cut it up and dissect it before beginning to try to take it in a sort of more holistic way. Non-philosophy doesn't try to sever it that way. If it severs anything from philosophy, it severs it from its sufficiency, but in, in a different way, right? Whereas Badu might try to keep it just as a custodian of truths. I think Laruel tries to make sure that it's no longer vying for the truth in any sort of sense. It's no longer the, a discourse toward the truth, but to a certain extent, it has become, this is where the regime of what he calls philofiction opens up. Because now if philosophy is no longer about the truth, if fiction and the real are no longer opposed to one another, then we can open up this new dynamic regime of philofiction. And I think that that is the continuous waveform of thinking that has a kind of equality of conceptual particles that can be tossed like dice into the sort of the collider of whatever you want to call it. I said a lot there. I do hope that kind of makes a little bit of sense that move to, to fiction, but maybe not. I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> Whether we use this or not, I'm glad we, we kept going a little bit, but hopefully some of this stuff makes sense. Hopefully now maybe a little bit more you know, what can imagine religious every time around the circle, I pick up a little, I learn a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, that would be my thing is the same way that religions claim to be the path, the right path, the righteous path. That's an element of sufficiency. There's a way of, there's a way in which sufficiency is, it's a much more formal structure than arrogance, but it, but the affect of sufficiency would be arrogance. He defines it elsewhere as philosophy's belief in itself as the real there is a sense in which philosophy is a faith for him it has it has faith that it can spontaneously work and i do think that for laura well 
just to bring in Deleuze here, I think that philosophy has always worked by breaking down. It just, it never realized that it was always already breaking down. It's failures to think they're real, it took for successes. It's always rolling snake eyes, if you will, and the great, <laughs> and the great, the great wager of thinking. And it thought it had, it had rigged the game beforehand too. It had rigged thinking's game beforehand and thereby limited the possibilities of thinking. Remi so. Again, reminds me dogmatic images of thought, but I won't. No, dude, you're totally right. I, I think that that is a, extremely important. I think in the book, he even uses that phrase at least once. I have to check back, but I know he's, you saw in the intro, he talks about, um, you know, some of the, the thinkers he admires, Kant, Nietzsche, Plato, obviously. And he says some of our recent loves, Deleuze and Badu, right? <laughs> like, you know that he's very much, and I think you could throw Lacan in there to a certain extent, right? right. I mean, he definitely, I think, is, I think you're totally right. In the simplest terms, at least in the most Deleuzean terms, yeah. without sort of tainting the project, I don't think it's a bad way of talking about non-philosophy as an analysis of images of thought. And I think that to a certain extent, the analysis is a theoretical aspect, but it's, it's an analysis too, in the sense in which it's trying to treat the images of thought as symptomatic of a way of being, a way of living, a way of thinking that have a whole host of effects in the world that are ethical or political, even aesthetic to a certain extent, which is why I brought up the fiction part. So all of that's wrapped up in these things. And um, this was kind of in a certain sense, we doing some undulatory shit here. Yeah, we did some <laughs> undulatory shit and we threw the dice up into the <laughs> up into the podcast world. We weren't sure what was going to come down today, but whether or not this is for patrons or for um, or for general consumption, I, I think that it was if anything, it was nice to to have hung out with you today, which is always fun. You want to call it here, maybe? Yeah, we can just call it here. Thanks Enjoy for letting it. me rant. The Machinic <laughs> Ranting Happy Hour. Love you, buddy. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Including the ultimate form of security, which is This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.